Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer Podcast. We share the stories of dedicated Booster Club volunteers and the tools and strategies they use to run successful booster clubs. We also have sought out experts on fundraising, volunteer management, and running nonprofits to share best practices. Hosted by Robin Eisler and Evan Eisler, you won't want to miss these great episodes that will help you run your booster club like a champ. Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer. Today, our guest is Drew England, the Chief Operating Officer of Parent Booster USA. Parent Booster USA is an organization that helps school support organizations handle their state and federal government paperwork. Parent Booster serves about 4,500 independent organizations. And Drew, we're excited to have you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. Yes, Parent Booster USA, we uh, help booster clubs all over the country uh, try and keep compliant with state and federal law. And so I'm always happy to talk about that. I'm a tax nerd. I love it. And that's constantly changing, right? Or always new new things being thrown in the way that you've got to stay alert on and all of those types of things. Oh, yeah. We've got both the federal government changing things about once a year. And then 50 states, 1,000 different counties. Things seem to change faster than we would like, perhaps. <laughs> but we're pretty good at keeping up. You guys have a great team and do a great job. How did Parent Booster get started? And, and talk to us a little bit about how it works. I know it's a nonprofit itself, and if you can explain all that, we'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. Parent Booster USA got started about 17 years ago by Sandra England, my mother, actually. And it started because she's a lawyer in the nonprofit sector, and she was also joined the PTO for the school that me and my little, that my little brother and I were in. And it was a mess. The accounting wasn't being done particularly well. There were missing records. There was no formal legal entity. It was just a group of people raising money. And she was a tax lawyer. And so she knew, well, this is not how you run things. This could get people into a lot of trouble. And there's a lot of risk involved here. And so she went through the process of getting the organization set up, got it uh, incorporated with the state, got a tax exemption with the federal government. But while she was doing that, she thought, well, I know how to do this, but most people would not. And so she decided to create Parent Booster USA with the goal of helping school booster clubs navigate these issues that are important, but are both not going to be immediately obvious to the average parent. And even if the average parent does realize it, is not going to know how to solve them. She thought it was a cute little idea. She hoped to get maybe 100, 200 organizations to help out. And we're approaching 5,000 now here pretty fast. So it's worked out quite well. As for what we are, we're a national tax exempt organization. We uh, are an educational organization. Our goal is to help educate people about the rules for running a nonprofit organization, specifically school booster clubs, PTOs, PTAs. School support organization is the broad term we use for it here. And the way it works is we have a whole lot of resources on our website just for free. If anybody has any questions they might have about how to run their booster club, we probably have answered them on our websites in our resources. And then for people who are looking for more help, we offer a membership with Parent Boost USA. And the membership will have us set up the organization for you. We'll file the documents for the state. We'll get you an EIN. We'll get you tax exemption with the IRS by virtue of being a member of Parent Boost USA. We're a group exempt organization. And so the IRS says, Parent USA is exempt and all of its members are exempt. And we track deadlines. We draft the forms. We do everything in our power to just make sure that you are staying compliant with the laws of the state and the federal government for 
how a nonprofit has to run. So how many people do you have on your team and what kind of people, you know, what are the people that do this? I know as a former booster club officer, we used Parent Booster USA and it was always a lifesaver because you guys would send us the email to say, hey, your tax return is due and your renewal is due for your 501c3. And gosh, we see a lot of organizations that let those things expire and get in trouble. So what does your team do? What's the nuts and bolts of it look like? Sure. So we have our teams up to 17 people at this point. And nuts and bolts of it is the bulk of our staff are state registration specialists. They are people that have been trained on the particulars of giving the states. And each one is responsible for a handful of states, uh, somewhere between two and seven, depending on member count. And they're trained to really just know all the ins and outs of their state, along with the federal rules. And they are who most of our members talk to and start forming a relationship. And their responsibility is they get you in the door, they figure out how your organization is currently operating and set up, and then we'll file whatever forms are necessary to get it going properly and register with the state and have an EIN. And this is true whether you are just getting started and just have decided to create a booster club, or if you're coming into a long-standing one that just has a lot of pre-existing mess, they're going to figure out first of all, what's going on, and then sort it out for you. From there, we also have escalating staff of their supervisors, who, if you come to us with a complex question, are more equipped to handle these more complicated issues. And then if you really manage to stump them, it'll eventually go all the way up to me, and I am a tax attorney, and while I can't give legal advice, it's very rare that a question crops up that I can't just answer off the top of my head. I'm pretty good at that. And so that really is the core of it, is Parent Booster USA provides support network for your booster club. Both people who are going to draft your forms, and these are real people um, who are just trained in the state and just really know it, who are going to draft the forms for you and get you filed, and then be there if you run into a problem, any problem at all, to be able to help answer your questions. And we get the whole gambit from, do you have a fundraising idea to, oh, help us, please, somebody has stolen money from our booster club. <laughs> we see it all and we're here to help. Speaking of theft and fraud, how often do you see that? Is it a common problem? Is it something as a volunteer running a booster club that you should think about, that you should plan for? What's the rate of how often you see it and what are some of the volumes of money that you've seen missing? So in aggregate, booster clubs have about $7 million stolen from them every year. Wow. That's, you know, across the entire country. And in terms of frequency, whenever a booster club has money stolen from them and they're a member and they call us for help, it gets escalated up to me pretty quickly. And I take calls on that about once or twice a month for wow. a new, new organization. That's crazy. So it happens quite a lot. And in aggregate, it's a lot of money. For the individual organization, it usually looks like someone who has been there for a while slowly is taking the money over a course of years. And usually by the time they get caught, they've stolen somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000 is the amount that usually is in play for the average booster club in my experience. And that's probably the money that we can see that's missing. There's probably a large sum that could be missing that you didn't even know was there, I would imagine. Yeah. Until you do a full audit of your organization, it's going to be guesswork. And unless your finances are really well put together, otherwise, some of it's always going to be guesswork. By the time it's all over, you're going to have a pretty decent estimate of what happened, but you're never going to know it down to the dollar. Right. It's so frustrating that people 
volunteer to do good and there's people that try to take from them. It's, it's such a frustrating thing. But let's go back and talk about the 501c3. So why can't a group of parents just get together and raise some money and donate it to the school? Talk about the 501c3, the tax exempt status, things like having a Venmo account and you just collect the money and donate it. Yeah. You're just doing good, right? Like what can happen? You're just doing good, except there's really two issues. And most of it comes down to liability for the parents. If something went wrong, how much trouble would the parents be in? And so to start with, in America, there are two options for a business. And a booster club is a business no matter how you're doing it. Either you have to pay tax or you don't. There's not really any in between. And in order to not pay tax, you need to be tax exempt. You need to have the status. You need to go to the IRS and have them say, okay, you are exempt from federal income tax. And if you haven't done that, you need to pay tax as a for-profit business entity. And in my experience, most of the times, if parents are just getting together and just deciding to do this thing, they're not paying tax because they don't know they have to or think they're automatically exempt or just plain don't want to, which is probably the worst reason. But ultimately, the reason doesn't really matter because if you owe tax to the government and don't pay it, that's tax evasion, at which point you're dealing with how likely is the IRS to show up at your door about this rather than could they? Because if you got Al Capone, it can get you. So that's one issue is you want to get this 501c3 status so that you don't have to pay taxes on the money you bring in. You also want the 501c3 status so that if people give you money on their personal income tax return, which I'm sure everybody has filed because that due date was about two days ago, at least when we're reporting this, if they donate money to a 501c3, they get to claim it as a deduction on their personal income tax return, which is just a great incentive and is usually a basic requirement for getting grants from any of the larger organizations. Walmart, Target, Disney World, they all have some corporate grant giving program and can be a great source of money, but they want you to have that 501c3 because between you and me, they're really just after the tax cut. There's also a liability problem. If you just have a group of parents get together and do this thing, and you're not incorporated with the state, well, someone is responsible for the activities of the booster. If you have a car wash and a kid slips and falls and breaks their leg and a parent decides to sue the booster club, somebody is going to get sued there. If there's a lawsuit, somebody's getting sued. And if you are incorporated, it's the booster club getting sued. Yes, it's the booster club. Frankly, if the booster club doesn't have insurance, the booster club's probably going to get wiped out because usually booster clubs don't have the kinds of funds to fight this thing and lawyers are expensive and it's a miserable process. But that's the big nightmare scenario if you're incorporated is you're not insured and somebody sues you and the booster club's money runs out and it closes down. So really, Not fun, right, but nah. not the worst thing. If you aren't incorporated, if you're just a group of parents getting together and doing this and you get sued, well, you are personally and individually liable. It's not the bank account of the booster club or it's not the Venmo or whatever that's on the hook. It's everything that any of the booster parents have. Wow. So it's the same as any type of other business. You're personally liable. So the, the incorporation gives you the liability protection. The 501c3 gives you the tax exempt status. Exactly. We have a lot of people that just come to us and say, we don't need to incorporate. Why should we do that? Why should we spend that little bit of money to get those protections and... I just want to say that if you're in Texas, which I know both you and I are, yeah. 
it's $25.56 to do this. <laughs> that's, that's what the state charges, $25.56. So the best uh, Just, popcorn and a Coke you'll ever spend, right? Especially seriously. movie theaters these days. Yeah. When you get the 501c3, that makes you tax exempt at the federal level. And I hear yes. a lot of people say, well, we don't have to pay sales tax. We're tax exempt. So let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So sales tax is the great bugbear. But to start with, so there are two different kinds of taxes. You've got your federal taxes, which is what the federal government charges you, and you've got your state taxes, which is what you owe to the state. States have a variety of taxes. In Texas, we're very fortunate not to have personal income tax, but most states do charge some kind of tax on corporations. Fortunately, in almost all states, if you're a 501c3, 501c3 organization, you're automatically exempt from that state income tax, but not in all states. Some states you have to file. But sales tax... Sales tax is the real stickler because sales tax has nothing to do with income. It is just a tax that gets paid on goods that are sold. And different states offer different versions of sales tax. There's 50 states and there's 50 different versions of this law. Some states offer exemption for when a booster club goes out and buys items. Some states offer exemption for when a booster club goes out and sells items. But unless you filed for that exemption, unless that state has explicitly given you an exemption, if you are selling something, you are a business selling a good, and you're going to need to collect sales tax and remit it to the state. And there's not that many exemptions to that. It depends wildly on your state. Some states have these have carve-outs for certain kinds of goods. Texas is an example of that, where there's just a carve-out for booster clubs on certain types of goods. But if you're outside one of these carve-outs, you just need to get a sales tax permit, and you just need to collect and then send the sales tax to the state, which is... I will admit, a pain in the butt. There's no denying that. These volunteers have all butt. kinds of time, Drew. Why don't they want to file sales tax? Well, because they're busy and also because in most states, getting a sales tax permit requires someone to put their social security number on it, which is not fun. And I understand perfectly well why a parent who's only going to be there for a year or two doesn't want their social security number on the sales tax permit associated with the booster club that might get used for forever, and then maybe somebody messes up, and then the state sends you, hey, why isn't the organization doing this? And then it's been seven years since you've been to Booster Club, and you have to say, well, I haven't been with the Booster Club. It's a whole to-do. I understand why parents are skeptical and reluctant to want to get that. All I can really say to that is either you get the sales tax permit, or you can't sell the thing that you'd have to collect sales tax on. And if you have a meeting and come to the conclusion that this sales tax permit is too much of a pain in the butt, we're just not going to sell anything that would require to collect sales tax, that's a valid option. You can do that. And if you're not selling things, you don't need the permit. So but things if you like are sell donations yeah. are not, they're yeah. not applicable to sales tax. Exactly. Donations aren't applicable to sales tax. Membership fees aren't sales taxable. Um, If you're just running a fundraiser, generally, that's not going to apply sales tax. Though, so if you're selling things at the fundraiser, it really, as long as you're doing something other than selling someone something, sales tax probably isn't going to apply. So like in a concession stand in your average state, and I know there are some exemptions, but if you're selling food, you may need to collect it. Or if you're selling a t-shirt or something like that. Yeah, by default, if you're running a concession stand or a spirit store or anything like that, and you're selling something out of there, you're going to need to collect sales tax on that transaction. Now, I will say booster clubs running a concession stand is one of the more common carve outs in states. 
it is very common for states to have a carve out for sales tax for a booster club running a concession stand or a spirit store, but it's not in all 50. So you want to look that up and know for sure before you do it gotcha. or send Parent Booster USA an email. And we'll yeah, that's a great you. idea. <laughs> great resource there. We're filing our tax return. They This is a detailed question, but there's different types of fundraising. One's called gaming, one's called non-gaming. What, what are the differences between those two? Yeah, sure. And so what we're really talking about is gambling. And gambling has a stigma to it, and so they call it gaming instead. But when you see gaming, what they're really talking about is gambling. And that is any scenario where you are, where someone pays money to have a chance to win something, and whether or not they win is primarily decided by luck. It's a game of chance. Common ones like this are poker, blackjack, raffles, really big one, bingo. bingo. Fantastic game of chance. 50-50s, they do it a lot of the fundraisers. Are those considered gaming? Yes, and they're almost always illegal. 50-50 <laughs> raffle is almost always illegal. Now, the real offender is football squares, though. If you're doing football squares, I don't know of a single state where you're actually allowed to do that. You need to have a gaming license or something like that if you're doing those types of activities. Yes. If you're doing those types of activities, you need a gaming license from the state. This is true in something like 38 of the states. That's a, Don't quote me on that number, please. But it's up there. It's high 30s of the states require a gaming license before you do some kind of game of chance. And those licenses still often have restrictions. Even with a license, for example, football squares are generally just a no-go. I know people love their football squares. They're just really frowned on it. I don't honestly know why, but they are. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Amazing how quick thing... you go from a really good idea to illegal, right? You have to. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the big thing is if there's a buy-in, a chance to win based on luck, and a prize, it's a game of chance, it's gaming, it's gambling. If you remove any one of those elements, it's not. So if there's no buy-in, it's just you walk in, you're handed a raffle ticket as a door prize welcome. You didn't have to pay anything for it. And there's a raffle at the end. That's not gambling because there's no buy-in. If there's a buy-in, there's a chance to win, but it's determined by skill. Who can hit the baseball the farthest? And there's a prize. That's not gambling because it's decided by skill. And if there's a buy-in, and there's a luck, and whoever wins is determined primarily by luck, but there's no prize. You just, at the end of the night, there's, and our lucky winner is Sean, get up here, and everybody gets a round of applause, or something like that, but there's no, like, prize of a monetary value. Not a game of chance. So that's the three elements you're looking for. And so if you do want to do any of these things, what you need to do is check into a gambling license from your state, and those are relatively easy if you meet all the requirements. Is that correct? Yeah, gaming licenses are relatively easy. The big requirement that hangs people up is many states require you to have been in existence for somewhere between three and five years before you're allowed to apply for it. Gotcha. But yeah, they're, they're fairly simple otherwise. And sometimes I see groups that outside of their formal or incorporated group, they have a friends of that does the poker night or something like that. And what if a group of people get together and do that and then donate the money in? What's the What are the details around that? I mean... That's mo mostly just trying to move liability off of yourself to someone else. And it may or may not work depending on how involved you are in the purse, other organization is, how related to the two entities are, if they're supporting other organizations or if they're just supporting you. There's a lot of facts and circumstances there. But the key is 
there's no getting away getting a gambling license or a gaming license if you want to do gaming. It's just who's responsible for holding that license. If you have this third party who's doing this for you, if they don't have a gaming license, they're doing something illegal. Whether or not that's going to splash back to you is going to be very facts and circumstances. It's possible you've insulated yourself enough from them, but it's still someone is doing something illegal involved there. Got it. Got it. That's good to know. It's always seems like, oh, we'll put it at arm's length. So that makes it legal. But we've talked a little bit about theft and fraud, about not incorporating, about doing gambling by mistake. What are some other common mistakes that you see in the school support organization, something that you see pretty frequently? Yeah. So there's a few big ones. I'd say the biggest, most common one is having a member of the school staff as a voting member on your board of directors. I see this all the time, and it's just generally a mistake. The reason for this is because the school staff member is paid by the school. They receive money from the school. The school receives money from the booster club or equipment or supplies or whatever support you provide. The school has a financial interest in receiving money from the booster club. The school staff member has a financial interest in the success of the school. And if they're a voting member on the board, they then also have an obligation to act in the best interest of your organization, which may or may not always be aligned with best interests of the school. As a result, the school staff member will always 100% of the time unavoidably have a conflict of interest. Good point. And this isn't any kind of recrimination on them. This isn't saying they're a bad person or anything. It's just as a matter of just the facts and circumstances, they're getting paid by the organization you're talking about giving money to. They have a conflict of interest. And so the way you handle conflicts of interest is the conflicted party doesn't vote. That's how you handle it in any kind of nonprofit situation where you've got someone who just runs into a conflict of interest is they provide whatever information they might have and the board finds useful, but they won't vote on the decision at the end of the day. Because a school staff member is always going to have a conflict of interest, they should never be able to vote. And so why are they a voting member of your board? And so that's one of the more common mistakes I see is just having a school staff member be voting a member of your board. Absolutely. Have them show up to your meetings. They can provide valuable information. Working with them closely is very helpful for booster clubs to be able to run properly. You just don't give them a vote because they can't ever really use it. Yeah, excellent. Excellent point. You don't think about it, but of course, you always look at the money trail, right? Where does the money go and who's impacted by that? And it's a great point that coaches and anybody that is a paid employee should not be a voting member of the booster club. Now, if they have a child that's or a student in the organization and they're on the parent side, would they also need to recuse themselves from the vote? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If they have a child in a school, they're part of the booster club, show up to the meetings, volunteer, do all that, they still can't vote because the conflict doesn't of interest doesn't go away just because they have a child. They're mm-hmm. still being paid by the school. The school still has an interest in the organization. They shouldn't be voting. I'm sure they're otherwise wonderfully vi- wonderful people. They just shouldn't be voting. Shouldn't be voting. Good point. Any other common errors that you see? Commingling of funds. So uh, you mentioned Venmo earlier. Venmo, PayPal, all of these electronic payment processing things are very convenient, very helpful for booster, booster clubs. But a big mistake I see is booster clubs just using the treasurer's Venmo account <laughs> or the president's <laughs> PayPal account or something like that. And it's just the money's going into their name personally rather than the booster club's name. And there's a few problems with that. First of all, whoever it is who owns the Venmo account is going to get taxed on that money because the individual is not a tax-exempt entity. And so the IRS is going to get a report from Venmo saying, hey, 
this person brought in $30,000 through the Venmo, tax them on that, and then you're going to get a tax bill at the end of the year. You're not going to be happy. Second, doing this breaks the terms of service of every payment platform that I know of, and so can result in you having your account frozen and banned, which is awful if you have $30,000 in there. Right. Third, it makes you very vulnerable to embezzlement if the person whose account the money is running through ever decides to take money from it. I'm not making any accusations, but gosh, is that a really, really easy way to get embezzled from? And I'm not saying I have seen that before. I am saying I've seen that before many times. (laughs) And finally, just as a best practice matter, even if those other four, I think, very good reasons not to do it don't matter to you, it's just best practice for the account to be in the name of the booster club. It's just the way you're supposed to do it. It's just how practitioners in our field recommend that you do it is booster club has its name on its own bank accounts, on its own payment processors, its own everything. Most of the time, these uh, payment processors such as PayPal will have a special nonprofit account for you, and they often charge fewer transaction fees to those accounts. Last time I looked at it, PayPal charged a full percent less to nonprofit organizations. So it's just beneficial to have it in the nonprofit's name also. And all it takes is like five minutes to set up an account. Like these things are not hard to set up usually. So please just have your PayPal account in the Booster Club's name. I always hate walking up to a concession stand and I see, you know, you can Venmo us and it's at somebody's name and you're like, oh no, please don't do that. <laughs> please don't do that. And then I think my third tip, I think the last tip I'm going to give here is common mistakes. Try and avoid handling cash wherever possible. I know that sometimes you've got a concession stand up or you're doing some kind of in-person event where you just need to have a cash box and it's unavoidable. And I get that. Wherever possible, and whenever you're thinking of doing these events, give it a good think long and hard on, is there a way that we could just do this fully through credit cards or debit cards or a payment processor or something? Because they are a order of magnitude or two more secure than cash at this point. Cash can walk off very easily without a paper trail. Even if you're doing everything right and you have two people at the cash box and two people counting money all the time, cash can just go missing. Even if there isn't any malfeasance, like it can just get dropped under a table somewhere. And also it's just a very easy target to steal from. And so where you can avoid using cash, you should. There will always be a digital record for credit cards. There will never be a digital record for cash. Yeah, I think the 2020, the COVID lockdown, really a lot of schools transitioned to well, most of the districts, right, transition to credit cards for all their tickets, and it's gotten people in that habit. It does take a little bit of training when you have people used to be able to come in with cash and pay for things. I know in our booster club, we took a year and a half to transition over, and then we really stopped accepting cash because there's just no trail. It's harder to audit. You have to drive to the bank every time. You leave tournaments with lots of money in your pocket, (laughs) which is sometimes a security issue. So it's a great tip there. Great tip. Well, you've been in and around school support organizations for a long time. What's the most unusual fundraiser you've ever seen? Anything unique? Our listeners are always looking for something new or something unique. Okay. So the actual answer to your question is the gun raffle, but I do not recommend the gun raffle. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So it was raffle tickets to win a gun? Yeah. They sold raffle tickets. The prize was a gun. I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. I don't Please probably don't in do Texas. That. that was probably in Texas. <laughs> it, it was, in fact, in Texas. Yes. This isn't a pro-gun, anti-gun thing. This is just 
do not raffle off a gun. It's a very irresponsible way to handle a gun. <laughs> yeah. At a school fundraiser, nonetheless, right? It's Yeah, at yeah. a school fundraiser. The most unique one that I can think is really cool is there was a booster club that had a old beat up car, didn't really even run anymore, donated to them. And so they sold tickets to take a sledgehammer to it. Oh, wow. That's a yeah. great idea. People love uh, A lot of fun. Cars. People have probably a good idea to have some kind of insurance for that. Probably <laughs> want to put a minimum age on who gets to handle the sledgehammer. But yeah, it, by all accounts, it was a lot of fun, made a decent amount of money. It required getting an old beat up car, which may or may not be possible depending on exactly how you're located, but it worked out for them. It's amazing. As we go through our day to day, we see all these various ideas and people are so creative in coming up with ways to raise money for the students and their programs. I love hearing about the unusual ones. I would like to say that while this is neither unusual nor particularly interesting, it is one that I stand by. If you haven't looked into it, it is worth looking into corporate grants. I know that sounds incredibly boring and tedious, but Walmart, Target, Disney World, Kroger, everybody has a corporate grant program that would love to give money to your booster club. And it is worth looking into. We're going to give your phone number and email for that, Drew. You'll probably get a lot of calls. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, if you Google it, I promise you, they're willing to give you like three to $5,000 a pop. We're spending a little time doing. It is worth your time. Absolutely. If you could give three best practices outside of incorporating and becoming the 501c3, what are three things that booster clubs just should be doing on a regular basis to keep their club on track? First thing I would recommend is to have a list of all of the relevant due dates. If you're a Parent Booster USA member, we have this online and you can just copy it down or just use our thing. But if you're not, just make a list, save it in a binder, save it digitally, wherever is convenient for you, and you hand it over to the next set of parents to come in after you to run the booster club because they're not going to know what all the things, all the due dates are, and it gets lost constantly. One of the bigger problems I see booster clubs falling out of compliance with is just the new parents don't know what's due when. And so if you just make a simple list, here are the things that have to get filed to keep you compliant. Here's when they're due. You don't even need to provide instructions on how to do any of that. It would be very helpful if you did. The parents would appreciate it if you did. But I understand you've got limited time. If you just give them the name of the thing and the due date, they have Google, they're going to be able to figure it out, or they're going to come to somebody like Parent Booster USA and will help them with it. But just providing that basic information, here are the things you have to do, very helpful. It's also a very, very good idea to have someone who cannot spend money have view-only access to your bank account. And just have them look at it once a month. And this doesn't have to be a full audit. They don't have to review every receipt you have, though if they're willing to, and you can do that, it's a great idea. They just need to look at it. And if they see something weird, say, hey, what's this? And then hopefully you just bring out the receipt and they say, oh, that was, uh, we had to go to Target. We had to buy some cones for the car wash. And then everybody's happy. Extra level of transparency. It's an extra level of making sure that there's good financial controls in place. It's just a very good idea. And the key is just have it someone who can't spend money. They don't have a credit card. They don't have a checkbook. They just can't spend the Booster Club's money. They just get to see in the bank account. They just get to look around and encourage them to do so. And the final thing is, please work through your school's purchasing process. A lot of Booster Clubs find that if the coach says, I need a dozen footballs, the Booster Club can either go down to a sportswear store, a sports goods store, and just buy a dozen footballs and hand them over. And it takes 
all of an hour, or you can donate money to the school and the school can run it through their purchasing program and they have to, it takes them two weeks to get the footballs. I understand how appealing it is to just drive down to the store, but the school has the contracts with vendors. The school knows how to manage money. The school has these purchasing processes in place for a reason. And I've found that booster clubs get themselves in a lot of trouble by turning themselves just into the coach's piggy bank by just bypassing these purchasing processes. So please, the best way to do it is if the coach needs something, donate the money to the school, make a note on this donation, this is what this money's for, have the coach request it through the school's purchasing process, school business officers everywhere will thank you. It's really good feedback. I think it's so common for the booster club to just go out and buy things and you have a school district where in a lot of cases, if not a school district, a private school, you've kind of got those processes already in place for you. I love the calendar idea. That's a great idea. We always encourage people to also add their annual, their program annual events. So if they have a big fundraiser on a certain day, set a calendar so people can plan ahead for that. And then so many times we hear that the treasurer is the only one with access to the bank account, the only one who knows what's there. Even the presidents aren't looking at the bank statements or seeing that. And it's just a crazy thing. You should definitely have multiple eyes on those. Oh, that's my nightmare. Because sometimes the treasurer just disappears and now you don't have anyone on your bank account. You have the money's all there. (laughs) The treasurer's just gone. And there's just no way to get at it. Like, it's just, please, have more than one person on your bank account able to spend the money in the first place just in case the treasurer goes on vacation for a month. (laughs) And And then have someone else that can see into it. Like, please please don't do that. And that's another good point. You have to usually take your bylaws in and show that you were voted on to get on the bank account, right? Typically. Yeah, there are solutions to that problem. A a signed copy of meeting minutes appointing the new board will generally get you on the bank account. But it's better just not to have that problem in the first place. Right, right. (laughs) You have all this money, but you can't get to it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple more questions. I really appreciate all your time today, Drew. Do you think generally the role of school support organizations is growing or is it dwindling? What kind of climate are we in? I think it's growing. The reality of it is schools are getting less funding these days. I wish that weren't the case, but schools are just receiving about the same amount of funding or less funding than they were 10 years ago. And the reality of inflation is even if their budget's the same, that's just less money to go around. And where schools normally cut right now are after-school programs. And booster clubs can really help step in and try and keep these programs afloat by providing volunteers and providing donations. The reality is the most expensive part of these programs often are staffing costs. And so if you have volunteers that can just be there and be the second adult in the room with the coach while he's doing the soccer, that's very helpful. And then just being able to provide the uniforms, the equipment. The reality of it is it once staffing costs are handled, it's generally just a few thousand bucks to keep these things running every year. But it's a few thousand bucks the school may not be able to allocate to the program. Right. So that's really where I see Booster Club's role expanding is just after school programs getting cut. Well, and I feel like the schools, the districts now, especially like they count on the booster clubs, <laughs> like they know it's there and they count on that as part of their their program funding. I know that Parent Booster has a ton of resources for anybody running a booster club or other support organization. Any other resources that you'd recommend or books or podcasts that would be good for volunteers? Yeah, so we have written our own book to plug. We've written a more than just cookie dough, 
which is written by our founder. And she goes into, in a fairly friendly, but also very detailed way, everything you might need to know about booster clubs and compliance. And it's all written much more understandable way than any of the IRS forms. I'd also say that Give.org, which is the Better Business Bureau's charitable organization arm, has a lot of really valuable resources about best practices for running nonprofit organizations. They're not gospel. You don't need to follow all of them to the letter. But if you're just thinking about how do we resolve a problem or what kind of rules should we have in place, Give.org has a lot of great places to get started. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I just read IRS paper. <laughs> so I'm not sure I can help you on that, but those would be my recommendations. That's perfect. It's great that you know sometimes you just wish you could get to everybody who's just been voted on a board and say, read this book, read this. It'll take you about a half an hour and you're going to give a lot back to your organization if you do so. Well, Drew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for what you guys do at Parent Booster. You save parents a lot of time and energy and we appreciate all of your support. And we loved having you here on The Boosted Volunteer. I loved being here. Great, great. Thanks so much. The Boosted Volunteer is brought to you by Booster Hub. To find out more about Booster Hub and how our app can help you improve communications, increase engagement, raise more money, and manage your booster club responsibly, visit www.boosterhub.com. And then make sure to search for Booster Club Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Booster Hub, thanks for listening.